Welcome to Season 2, Episode 47 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining you today is Marcus Pachter. Marcus is an author. His most recent collection is Begat, Who Begat, Who Begat, and it's out through Astrophil Press. Welcome to the show, Marcus. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's good to be here. How is summer in Florida treating you? Extremely hot outside. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah, the, met- the metaphors about ovens and broiling and whatnot, they're all quite accurate. And, uh, you know, um, I send my kids out right by riding their bikes for a few minutes, uh, about 8 30 a.m because after that it's way too hot to go biking uh and so uh, it's hot it is hot and so you're in jacksonville um for those people who don't know florida like me what part of florida is that it is basically the very northeasternmost point of florida uh, okay it is uh, you know i think when a lot of people think of florida they think of miami and like um beautiful beaches and uh whatnot um jacksonville is definitely not like that uh, it is it is a city uh but it doesn't look anything like miami at all okay before we get into your writing do you want to tell us a bit about your background um where you grew up and how you found your way into writing sure uh, so i i began writing uh in a very unserious way uh back in middle school uh teacher miss o'rourke had a writing exercise every day, really was a free write exercise. And my friend, Greg Pearson, um, had this idea uh, to call himself Super Greg, and he would fight the villains of the school uh, who were basically uh, Mr. Rourke uh, and the principal. uh, And he called her the Gypsy O, and the principal was named Mr. Verdon, and he called him Dark Verdon. And uh, I just stole everything from him. it, terrible, but I stole everything from him, and I started doing it in my class, uh, and everybody laughed at the stories and enjoyed the stories, and so did Mr. Rourke. And I'm like, this is good for me. I like uh, people enjoying my jokes, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I kind of just said, this is the type of thing I would like to do, um, and have some fun uh, with words and make people um, enjoy them. So. From there, it was kind of on ever since. Although I would say, like, getting into anything that anybody would ever call remotely literary took a much longer time after that. Okay, very cool. At the moment, you're teaching. So you're teaching creative yes. writing, which sounds yeah. amazing. Um, do you want to tell us a bit more about your work? Yeah, so uh, I I got very fortunate to get a gig like this. Uh, not... Not many writers are able to land a full-time job like that uh, and able to like talk to people about stories all the time, which enables me to think about why a piece of fiction might work or not work. Um, but it's helpful because I can take all those ideas back into my own writing, which really involves like thinking about the form of a piece and not just about, it's about the sentences, of course, it's about the sentences and making sure that each sentence is kind of precise and precise in a way that 
can capture the unexpected distortions of the world and weirdnesses of the world. And then when you have like the sort of formal play all the way around it, uh, which is what I'm very interested in, uh, different types of forms of stories create different kinds of possibilities for weird distorted language. And they can even open up the room to more distorted language. Uh, and so you can make the world all around us uh, seem very weird, fun, different and unexpected, which is everything I think people are kind of after inside of fiction, um, mm -hmm. however you get around to it. And so I'm always interested in doing that. Um, and of course, finding a way to slip in a joke here or there. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are some of the works that you really like teaching? Oh, yeah. So I'm actually, this semester, I'm about to start teaching an intro to lit class. And mm -hmm. what I turned it into was an intro to fiction class. Uh, and I just gathered short stories that I really love um, and I think are fun to teach uh, and see what's inside of them. Uh, and so taking into account like all the writers that I like, like American writers for sure, but like uh, a lot of writers from different parts of the world. Uh, so I'm teaching for the first time, like uh, stories that I really enjoy, but that I've never dug into too deeply in any kind of serious way, like fiction of Sun Shui uh, over the past few years has been really important to me uh, just in terms of opening up the possibilities of the world. And so teaching a story uh, by her called euphoria um, which is very it is kind of similar to something like almost that jorge luis borges would do but also very different it's a story about um, an old lady who likes to visit this senior citizen's home uh, but this home is like also like the gateway to like the whole universe uh, and labyrinth on labyrinth. And every time she walks into the home, uh, the home bends in this direction and that. And so she can go anywhere, uh, but also nowhere. Like she climbs to the top of the building and she thinks she's about to see the roof. There's just another stairwell. Uh, and it sounds like horrifying, but the woman is enjoying herself thoroughly. Uh, and this is like the time of her life, so much better than being out in the real world. And it's really... A delightful story and like kind of when i'm teaching like thinking about how a story like that can work is one thing and then just showing students like you know you think fiction is this one thing but it's this other thing and then week after week you read new stories and talk about different ways that writers kind of go about things and can achieve new things that is a that's a real pleasure uh, and like, I think I said this before, but maybe, maybe I didn't, uh, which is that when I'm doing this, like it allows me to think really much more deeply about the stories and how they work and how I can like take it back with me to my own stories. Cool. Okay. We touched on it briefly before we started recording, but um, you grew up in New Orleans. Is that right? Uh, that's where I was born. Yeah. Um, I was born in New Orleans and I lived for a while in Baton Rouge, which is the capital of Louisiana. Uh, and then we moved to Florida uh, when I was in high school. Um, so I kind of like lived in the deep South. Uh, 
pretty much my whole life. Yes. You have one previous collection out that you put out in 2012. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that collection? So versus Death Noises uh, is uh, a little bit different from Begat Who Begat Who Begat because I wasn't thinking about family life in any kind of way, the way that family life kind of occupies Begat. Uh, these are stories much more about uh, being alone uh, in all the ways they can be alone. Uh, sometimes, many times uh, after death, but usually just kind of hanging out at their apartment um, and, and at work too, uh, surrounded by people, but having no one there really. Uh, and at the same time, uh, the kind of there's a lot of formal play uh, at work. Uh, there's always is, I think, in my fiction and in fiction that I think is really interesting. Uh, and so some of these stories are archival records, uh, there are interviews, uh, there are fragments that jump all over the place. And I think it's fun. And the truth is like that, that whole collection is kind of like a weird, uh, a weird miracle that actually happened. Cause I, in some ways, now that I'm 10 years past it, like, uh, I think that the story of like how it got published is more interesting than the actual collection, which is probably <laughs> not a thing I should say if I want people to buy that book. Uh, but it is kind of like a, a date movie sort of plot. Uh, that collection came about like the year that I was going to try and ask my wife to marry me, my future wife to marry me. Uh, but it's like, how am I going to ask her to marry me? and talk to her parents and whatnot and call myself a writer when I don't have a book. And so before I asked her to marry me, I like wrote as hard as I ever wrote that summer and said, now I've got a book kind of, and then I sent it off. And like, uh, then the one place that I sent it to said, we love it. We're publishing it. And so, and then my wife said, yeah, I'll marry you. And so that is like kind of like a film out of like 1983, <laughs> uh, I think. Uh, yeah. Like that, you can almost see like the montage. I can almost see like the stupid montage of me writing and throwing paper all over the office. Mm -hmm. um, yes, but it kind of came together and uh, that's nice. And they're unmarried. Wow. So imagine what would have happened if your short story collection got rejected. Yes. Like that—that's like the depressing future of me. Uh, <laughs> like instead of talking to you, I'm just kind of—I'm uh, probably—I'm probably just uh, hanging out in the afternoon, um, ESPN in the background, and maybe uh, drinking some Budweiser. Um, very depressing. <laughs> very, very depressing. Then, then I'd probably be a character back in the short story collection. Yeah. Um, yes. Exactly. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to your most recent collection, Begat, Begat, Begat. It's a really diverse yes. collection of 17 short stories. Some are as short as a page and a bit. Um, you cover gift-giving toilets, flesh-eating diseases, eels, fishing, a closet containing three daughters, which is represented by a rectangle on the page, uh, and some holes. Can you tell yes. us a bit more about your collection? Yeah, so that, that sounds really cool. I'd like to read that. Uh, that like So... I think trying to like actually sum up a short story collection is 
you probably shouldn't be able to do it because each story should really have its own sort of aboutness to it that makes it really distinct. Mm. I, but I think when I, so on the back of the book, there's a blurb by the writer Amber Sparks, and she's got a phrase in there that I really like, uh, domestic madness. <laughs> and I think that kind of covers things uh, in a certain kind of way. Because the book really does deal with a lot of domestic uh, drama situations that in a lot of ways are almost like sound played out uh, when you first think of they do sound played out. Uh, you know, like here's a guy who kind of wants to leave his family for some other woman. Here's another guy who is afraid his wife is going to leave him for someone else and he'll be stuck with the kids. Here's a story about a kid. Uh, you know, gone missing. Here's a young woman who's been raped. Like they all sound like tawdry sentimental dramas, uh, sort of thing. Uh, but like then there's the madness, uh, which is helping, I think, uh, trying to take the stories in a very different direction. So there are like magic toilets, right? And you flush them, like gifts come up, uh, and you have to mess with those for a little while. There's a house that's like kind of like a computer, but also like the length and breadth of the universe, uh, you know, and there it's been infested by these mechanical roaches. Uh, those sorts of things like and there are android invasions, those sorts of things that they kind of uh, give the madness to the stories and kind of allow you to like, OK, like, yeah, he's got like this basic sort of. Uh, desire that we all kind of know about but like there's a lot of other fun stuff going on and then like there's all the sorts of different formal things that i'm trying out inside the collection that also i think add to the madness there's the like that story about a girl getting raped a young woman getting raped uh like it's really an inventory of all the things of value to her you know there's like or how much they're valued at um, afterwards, you know, her body, parts of her body, but also like she's assigning value to like her roommates and a gallon of milk um, that take the story in a whole different direction that I don't think anybody's really messed with before. Uh, there's a story called Archaeology of Dad, uh, which is like about a young man thinking about his father, who was a neoconservative pundit in the 80s during the reagan administration but like that storyline is constantly interrupted by these big black holes of text uh, with commentary and digressions and i think snarky remarks and such things uh, that take the story in a whole other direction and on top of all that there are these little objects that come back around again and again there are uh, lots of screws lots of teeth and murdered mm -hmm. dogs and each time they come around, like we kind of turn them in a new direction and play with them in this new way. And so uh, there are all these different things going on to like cover over that like played out uh, dramatic business and turn them into whole new sorts of things to enjoy. Uh, kind of capturing, like I always think like everything should be unexpected and turn you this way and that. It's like the first pleasure of fiction. And so kind of doing that are all these elements in place. And I think uh, 
when I just think about those objects, they're like tying the stories together on a very um, small but definite level. Uh, so they almost feel like, even as they're really distinct and diverse everywhere, uh, they are in some ways like begetting one another. Uh, and then you kind of go back to the title, mm. which is fun. Yeah. <laughs> as a reader, I really enjoy finding the author in their work. And with the domestic madness and having you having two kids, uh, I also have two kids. I understand domestic madness quite well. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. But I loved finding the little bits of what I assume are you sticking out of these stories. Obviously not quite the mad parts, but I think your starting off points for a lot of them like seem like they've happened in real life. Do you want to tell us a bit more about some of your inspirations? Yeah. So they they come from a lot of places. Uh, some like there's a fishing story in there from way back when when my cousin and I did go fishing and try to uh, catch an alligator. Uh, though the story in the book ends very differently than the story in real life. Um, they're also like uh, things that kind of pick up along the way. Like, there's a lot of stuff about um, home improvement. Like we had a fixer upper for a while. So like learning to patch walls, and, like fix electrical wires and stuff and install toilets. Like all of those are like straight out of my own experience. There's a story in there uh, right toward the end where like, this uncle picks up uh, this sad sack off the side of the road and takes him back to his house. Uh, and that house is in the middle of nowhere, Louisiana. Uh, and it's the sturdiest house anywhere. Like most houses are built with nails, but this house is built with screws. And the inspector has told the uncle that this is the sturdiest structure on the Gulf Coast. And that house is freaking real. That's my <laughs> uncle's house. Uh, wow. He built that house himself. And he really is, uh, as it says in the book, uh, like one of the few people I know who could really be useful at civilization's end because he knows how to build things um, from start to finish. And he's awesome that way. Um, even though in the story, he's very different from my real life uncle. Uh, very different. Like there are like these little biographical flashes I like to stick in there. Uh, no, no, like, but like, you know, like the dramatic stuff, none of it's real at all. Um, I never, like, I never want to talk about my own fiction, my actual worst experiences ever. <laughs> that sounds uh, terrible. <laughs> it sounds terrible. <laughs> you spoke about it just briefly before, um, Begat Who Begat Who Begat, the title. Um, and the short stories begetting uh, each other, I suppose. But um, how does it tie into, I guess, the biblical reference? Yeah, so uh, so the biblical reference comes uh, directly from, like, there's a story at the end called More Fish Than Man, where he's reading the Bible, and, like, he's trying to understand it, and, like, he's just, like, all this begetting. And there is, like, there's a lot of begetting in the Bible. <laughs> uh, and so the, I know that. Uh, but it also comes uh, from like a couple of other stories, uh, like, like where other things are begetting themselves and getting crazy. And I think again, like this idea that like these stories do kind of beget one another, even though like it's not as though all the characters are the same exactly. 
that there's like a certain material element to them kind of come back around again whether it is like a murdered dog or there's this like guy who comes back like the only named character in the book i'm pretty sure uh is a guy who's named berg or sometimes burn or burger or bergen uh and he kind of comes back around again and again in slightly different form with a different sort of life but also the same sort of life in that he doesn't know what to do uh and he's in a real mix and so like that idea of like constantly beginning there's like an infinite repetition infinite outgrowth a tangle of people a tangle of events and objects that's really uh what the best literature is where it feels like a total chaos and yet you also feel like even if i don't know the shape of the thing i know it's not really chaos i know that there is an order underneath everything uh that makes it a really pleasant ride through this insanity speaking about order um these stories were all previously published in a range of journals and magazines how did you go about picking the stories and how to put them in order in the collection yeah so uh, so picking out the stories was kind of easy because even before uh, long before long before i had a collection ready for action i knew what kinds of objects i wanted to work with over a long period of time i because i got married and because i got kids i got a lot of obligations and i knew like trying to like write a novel with these babies in the house was not going to be a good idea but i could write a bunch of short stories and it could have almost almost a kind of novelistic con- continuity if i am constantly playing around with similar objects uh, and similar images and so uh, before i began it was almost you know the alipo like yeah uh, yeah like you know like they just pick out certain rules uh and so sometimes i do that like what i did here was i picked out certain objects i was like your stories should be featuring at least a couple of these each time out and so always when i began no matter what i began with like at some point these things would keep coming back around and i just the challenge was to like turn them in a new direction and make it so it wasn't the same as it was in the previous story and so when it came time to like finally put the collection together i had an assortment of stories to kind of like look at and say which ones are the best and how do they all fit together so that it did feel like a cohesive collection and not just like the stories i'd written over the past 7 or 8 years but were really a coherent collection that made sense together with publishing it with astrophil how was that process uh it was awesome on uh, so the good you know i shot this place around shot the book around to a few places i won't say a ton of places shot the place around to a few publishers that i thought were really interesting and cool and uh, some of them were interested but couldn't quite do it at the time for whatever this reason or that reason and i'd shopped it around for a while and you know my friend christian tobordo at one point was like you should send it to duncan uh, duncan barlow who i've known for a lot of years we've worked together 
Uh, we worked together at the same university for a long time. Uh, he was a good friend of mine, but I resisted for a while because, you know, I guess like there's, there was a feeling inside me like uh, you don't want it to like look like nepotism or even like kind of sort of nepotism, that sort of thing. Uh, but at one point I was just like, you like Duncan, you know, working with him would be great. Uh, and uh, you know, he's putting out quality books. And so you might as well see what he thinks and um, see what happens. And so Duncan did like the collection and said, let's do it. And the whole process of working him with him was uh, wonderful. You know, uh, Duncan's such a laid back and caring person um, who's been involved in the production of art and music uh, for a long time. Uh, and he knows uh, he knows how to treat people because he knows how he wants to be treated. You know, he's just a very ethical and good person. And so working with him on that level was great. Working with him on editing the book, making sure the book had a great look and feel, um, you know, uh, that was all him. And yeah, you know, I was kind of edgy about it because you don't want the nepotism feel and you don't want like business to mess with your friendship either. But it really worked out great. Um, and I'm very, yeah, it's awesome. Working with Duncan's great. Some of the blurbs on the back of the book, you've got some pretty famous people on there too. Yeah, I was very fortunate in that regard. Um, you know, uh, I, I knew, I've known Amber Sparks and Sarah Rose Etter, uh, but not like super no. Like I've just met them, like Amber, um, you know, I taught her book, a book that she wrote with Robert Kloss many years ago called The Desert Places. And like that was back in the days of Skype and she Skyped into my class. And so like had a good friendly relationship with her, professional relationship with her for a long time. And I went to a, I did a reading series called The Tire Fire Reading Series many years ago with Sarah and also Christian Tabordo that I mentioned earlier. And so I met her back then in a book, The Book of X, fantastic. So like when the time came to do blurbs, like it's like, let's see what they think. And then Gary L. Lutz was like, like, let's just shoot for the moon. Cause I'd never, never met or interacted or even like sent a note like, I love your book, uh, to Gary L. Lutz. Uh, but I just thought, uh, you know, a type of person you like a person who knows how to write sentences to like your sentences. And so we sent it to her and uh, she sent back a beautiful blurb, um, and I got to tell you, like each one of those, when like they came back, I was just like, "Wow, wow, that's uh, we're talking about my little fiction." So, uh, and it's a really uh, beautiful feeling, and uh, stayed with me, um, stayed with me for sure. Before we started recording, we were talking about, I guess, the the idea that a short story collection can kind of be like the Andre course or a selective palette. Of, what, do you, what do you even call those things? Um, <laughs> a, a, a taster, like a yeah. testing table? Yeah. Oh, yeah, now exactly. I've lost the word. Yeah, I know. Like a tasting little tester menu. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the, this short story collection, for you anyway, like really does, um, like for the reader, like really gives you a taste of whole lot of different aspects of, of your writing and i'm really excited yes. to see you know your future work based on based on this thank you so much like you know like I, I think if i when i do a story like i've wanted to have like a 
each one should have its own kind of feel and idea. And so like, it is like a, like a beautiful little plate, like a little appetizer. When I used to cook, we used to call them little lanyaps. Uh, you just send out these little tastes uh, of food out to guests, just to like let them know what they were in for. Uh, but the lanyap itself should be really beautiful and tasty. Uh, and I like a little piece of art on its own. And I think that is um, what I try to do. I want each story to be really special and like for a reader to kind of want to read the next story, eat a little more, find out what else I can cook. Mm. Well, with your cooking, uh, what are you cooking up at the moment? Yeah, so uh, I'm always working on a couple of stories and I am building a new kind of collection uh, that hopefully will be ready in a couple of years. You know, we talked before, like how slow I am as a writer uh, and I am slow and like taking my time, but um, I like these stories. They're, they're not the same. Um, they're not the same as the ones in Begat, Begat, Begat. They're a little, they're still kind of funny, but they're also a little darker. Um, but uh, yeah, so those are a lot of fun. And I've also started during the first summer of COVID uh, trying out a novel and I've got a draft of it done. It needs a lot of work. It's more like it's more like a novel-like substance, I would <laughs> say right now. Uh, but I think it is a lot of fun. And I think it is like me kind of trying out all this uh, madness and formal play on a much larger scale and you know, really trying to go for it. Like, you know, they're not just like formally, but like the chapters kind of break down in different ways. Uh, you know, there's a whole, there's like, uh, there's like a 50 page section of questions and there are diagrams uh, and like these weird erased canvases all, all intermixed with the prose. And it's really pretty crazy and it's not ready for anyone to read at all. Uh, but it's a lot of fun to kind of dive in every so often and like see what other kinds of weird business uh, we can stick in there and tie together. Um, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, but it's a kind of a long-term project uh, that I'm enjoying. And, you know, one of the things about being a writer uh, like me is that no one is kind of like beating down the door. So I have plenty of time to put things together in just the way that I want them. And uh, that means that all, all I have to do is worry about whether it's interesting to me or not. Uh, and and I just have the confidence now, feel like feel pretty confident that like, if I do get things in the right order, uh, somebody's gonna wanna read it. That's cool. Yeah. That's amazing. Fun. Well, I'll be getting in line when that's ready. Thanks, Ben. That's awesome, <laughs> dude. You're, uh, we know, um, Anybody who's listening to this show knows uh, you're a fantastic reader, man. Like, and you're reading the good books. <laughs> and the bad ones, I just chuck away. That's, well, that's what you, oh, you got to do, man. That's exactly <laughs> what you got to do. <laughs> Speaking of that, do you want to talk about some of your gateway books? Sure. So my gateway books um, really started, when it was like 18 or 19 when I like moved, I think, from just reading like comic books like the X-Men to more literary stuff. And like a lot of like a lot of dudes, especially when they're 18 or 19, I just read everything by Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, 
and especially Breakfast of Champions, Cat's Cradle, I read in like a night and I just thought like he had the mix, like really clear sentences that a 19 year old for sure could like rip on through that sort of dry, cynical humor. Uh, like it just worked and like he had like this inventive business that just sucked me in and I just read everything by him. And there was also a book called A Feast of Snakes by Harry Cruz. Uh, Harry Cruz was my teacher at the University of Florida in a couple of workshops. And he was like a force of nature, uh, super intense dude. And, you know, like huh, one day like, he was old and older and uh, he was alcoholic. And one day he slept uh, going to class and like he was bleeding from the forehead and he taught the whole class bleeding from the forehead. Uh, and it was kind of an amazing experience. Like what a, like he just had, a, like he just fit an idea of mine of like what a man could be. And a feast of snakes is like, got that same intensity, but like turned up to like a gazillion Watts. Uh, and it's got the most intense, uh, like cynicism, uh, darkness and like, the coolest sex scene I've ever read in a work of literature, uh, which I'll try to describe now. Uh, it's uh, There are two intense sex scenes in there, but the one that I'm going to describe is where this character named Duffy Dieter is introduced, and uh, he's introduced uh, thinking about shoes, piles and piles of shoes, Treblinka, Auschwitz, Dachau, and uh, then a woman like tells him, you're killing me. He's like, I know. And he's got her pressed up against the wall with his penis inside of her. And like, you realize like he maintains his erotic energy. Like he's got this death energy from like the Holocaust rolling through him. Uh, and it is the most intense, uh, terrifying, crazy, uh, visceral sex scene. Uh, and it's stayed with me ever since. Um, and that book right there, I've, you know, I haven't read that book in probably like 15 years but you can remember just about every scene in that book and just how precisely rendered it is uh, and wonderful it is like you go through this whole georgia town um yep it's, ama it's an amazing book uh and like it's a book that like just just stayed with me it was just like this man is a writer that book is written sentence by sentence all the way through and that's what i want um and those two writers uh, those two, um, yeah, they stay with me and they just made me want to go after it and do something of my own, uh, which turned out to be very different from either one of those guys. Uh, but they started, they kind of set me on my path. Wow. The Harry Cruz thing sounds insane. Oh, oh man. Like, uh, if you ever want to know what rural Georgia is like, uh, and, uh, but also, uh, how much, yeah, how much meaner it can be than you think, um, uh, that's the book right there, Feast of Snakes. Do you have any carte blanche authors, authors you'd go out and buy their book on the day it came out? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, right, I, I don't have a lot, but right now, Gerald Murnane, uh, I guess, I mean, he says he's not going to put out any more books. And certainly, last letter to a reader, <laughs> like, it feels like an ending. Uh, uh, but, uh, like, I know, like, I discovered him a few years ago. 
I started buying book after book and I know like I'd buy anything that man writes. Um, there, there's some writers who can put sentences together and can tell you about anything and you would want to listen to them talk about it. And he is certainly one of them. I would read him write about anything, you know, his marble. I can watch, I can read about him playing those marble games <laughs> and watching uh, horse races all the time. Uh, and um, I, I, I tell people, I tell uh, my students, I tell other people too, like, you know, um, a writer who can take mundane, nothing stuff uh, and make it interesting. That's where the real talent is. And he certainly got that for sure. And the other writer uh, is Sun Shui, uh, who is very different from Gerald Murnane. Uh, she's such a unique writer uh, and does things in a way that I could never do. Uh, but endlessly interesting in creating these kind of dreamlike worlds, um, worlds where anything can happen. Uh, and yeah, she's amazing too. Uh, her book, Vertical Motion, is one of my favorite collections of the 21st century. Each story in there is just surprise after surprise um, in just this wonderful way that no one else in the world can really do. Yeah, she's been brought up twice on this program in the last week or so. Um, and I, yeah, I'm very keen to read her 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 novel. But yeah, Vertical Motion sounds amazing as well. Yeah, Vertical Motion and The Last Lover is also uh, really wild as a novel, uh, super wild. Okay. Yeah, I've read read all her books. She's great. Okay, amazing. All right, she's on my list. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to? Yeah, so uh, right now I'm reading uh, several books. I'm reading the unauthorized biography of Ezra Moss uh, <laughs> by Daniel James, which yeah. is amazing. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many, like, uh, I don't know how many people know about this book. Like, I know you had uh, him on your podcast, which was a kind of uh, an amazing podcast. Uh, like, he really, he really delivered the story amazingly. Uh, and that book is like page after. Like, it's a beautiful book, and just the page design and the variety of page designs in the book, just a beautiful book, and really like uh, that. It that it really is it. Uh, a real head game of a book that is very unique and doing a lot of things that I love inside of a novel. Uh, totally recommended. I'm also reading uh, a book called The Human Mind. I'm rereading The Human Mind. It's by Angela Woodward. I'm going to be interviewing Angela later this year or maybe early next year. She's going to have a new book coming out called Ink. And this is her first book. It's a collection of very, very short fictions. The whole book is only 50 pages long, uh, but really inventive and uh, beautiful works of compression, uh, doing things that you wouldn't think you could do in two or three pages. Got this story called the de 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 Daguerreotype. I knew I was going to mispronounce that. <laughs> uh, but uh, it features Edgar Allan Poe uh, meeting a demon who is trying to tempt him with this uh, Daguerreotype op. Uh, that maps the entire universe uh, and everything that Edgar Allan Poe sees in there, uh, the vastness of the universe, the money that he needs, uh, everything. And intermixed with all kinds of like 
small details of Edgar Allan Poe's life, like the time he and his family uh, took this trip to like, England and like they wouldn't heat the boat uh, no matter what the father paid him. Uh, just a wonderful story and like so magical and taking you everywhere in three pages. Um, she's totally great. And I'm also reading uh, Decolonizing the Mind. And now I'm going to mangle uh, this gentleman's name, even though he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, it's by Ngugi Wa Thiong'o. Uh, and uh, this is a very different sort of book. Like this is my nonfiction read. Uh, and it's really kind of talks about the history of colonial Kenya uh, and also the need for Kenyan writers and writers across Africa to write not in English or any of the uh, colonial languages like French or Portuguese, but to write in their uh, vernaculars, um, you know, which is kind of similar to like the Dante thing where he began to write in the vernacular rather than in Latin, uh, but for very definite political ends uh, and to try to help affect uh, the decolonization of Africa and to write and to affect a more uh, authentic sort of homeland writing. Uh, I don't know if I agree with everything that he's saying in the book, uh, but it's a very interesting read. And I always like reading uh, books by authors with very different ideas from my own. It's good. Okay. I also saw recently you interviewed David Leo Rice. Yes. Yes. Uh, I like, David Leo Rice is great. Like uh, his books, like I started reading his books last year. I read his collection Drifter. You know, we were talking like how about like, a collection of short stories can be like a gateway point. Uh, mm. And so like I was reading those stories. I'm like, I got to read some more. Uh, and he's got a new book out called The New House. I know you had him on the show. He's uh, really super, super smart. And his books have that sort of chaos, uh, that sense of chaos everywhere, but also that feeling that you're in good hands, that as chaotic as it feels on this page and on the next page and for the next 50 pages, you know that this guy is leading you through a fog to somewhere awesome. Uh, and he's even showing you all the cool things that are inside the fog. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, he's a really, really talented writer, uh, especially skillful in that like he's so prolific uh, you know, it takes me a gazillion years to write a story and like he's generating hundreds of pages every year. Um, yeah, totally admirable. Um, yeah, his work is excellent. Are there any books coming up uh, towards the end of the year you're looking forward to? Yeah. So uh, this year and early next year, uh, Sun Shui, talked about before, it's got a new novel, novella coming out. I think I think it's a novella coming out with Sublunary Press, and I'm going to pick that up for sure. Ricky Ducournay uh, is going to have a novella out, I think, early next year, and she's really a lot of fun, and I'm totally looking forward to seeing what she's going to do now. You know, there's something about an author who's been around forever, like, and still trying new things. Uh, sounds great. There's a writer, Lance Olson. Do you know Lance Olson's work? I've heard of him. I haven't read any of his work, though. Yeah, he's fantastic, too. Like, uh, Lant Olsen uh, has been around for many years and has published a gazillion novels. He's another amazingly prolific writer. Uh, and he started in sci-fi 
uh, and like uh, doing really edgy sci-fi stuff. Uh, but now like he does some really interesting stuff with uh, very fragmented histories that cover all kinds of time periods all over the world. And he's got a new book coming out next year that's apparently about David Bowie uh, in some form or fashion. And regardless, you know, he's another writer. Like I'd pick up anything that he does. Uh, and he's got a book coming out next year about David Bowie that I can't wait to read. It's going to be super interesting. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero. We're speaking with Marcus Pachter. This episode is brought to you by Delays in the Global Supply Chain Network. If you need a great excuse for your fuck-up, go to excuses.com and use promo code BTZ for your first excuse free. Excuses.com We're back on Beyond the Zero, it's time to hear Marcus's top 10. So some of my top 10, I don't even know if I have to go into because I think just about everybody who comes on your show, like talks about things like Borges uh, and he's the man. Uh, I think everybody uh, reads Borges. And when I think about the collected fictions of Borges, it's really an inexhaustible well. And you can open that book up to any story, any time, and you're going to learn something about the power of a precisely phrased sentence and the power of an imagination that uh, can go anywhere and do anything. And uh, you can also be given an inferiority complex because uh, <laughs> the man is a walking library. Uh, and that is, um, yeah, uh, so really intimidating, but also really beautiful. Borges, collective works on. Um, Everybody should have that on their shelf. Uh, same thing, I think, is true with Beckett's trilogy. Uh, everyone loves Beckett. Um, uh, well, everybody, everybody that I think, I, everybody who's writing I like, likes Beckett. And so I love Beckett. Uh, and he's another writer who can write about anything and make it interesting. Uh, riding a bike down the road, interesting. Uh, sucking stones and moving the stone from pocket to mouth to pocket and all that stuff, 16, 20 pages of sucking stones, man. He's be beautiful and brilliant, and I love him uh, very much. Uh, and the, I kind of see a line from Beckett to my next guy, Donald Barthlamy. You could pick out really any collection of his, or even any collection of a collection, like 40 stories or 60 stories uh, by him. And it's so beautifully done the way that he kind of collages ideas, uh, periods, arts, philosophies, and jokes, uh, and oftentimes forms into something you've never seen before. And his move uh, late in his career to all dialogues is so interesting. And I'm not sure anybody's figured out exactly why or how he did that, uh, but they work. They just work so well. And really, like, uh, there's a story in my book called The Remainder that has uh, these dark rectangles. Uh, I think you might have mentioned it. Uh, mm. These dark rectangles on the page, which kind of represent a closet door. 
uh, like it's stolen, like the whole idea of the story, those rectangles and the dialogue form of the story is stolen or uh, messed with uh, by Donald Bartleby's story, The Explanation, uh, which has uh, these boxes on the page uh, and uh, it's just a brilliant story. And like the first line is something like, uh, do you think this machine will be useful in overthrowing the government? And it's like, yes, tell me more. And the story just goes in beautiful, brilliant directions. And so that one's in 40 stories. And so I guess if I had to say uh, which book I recommend, it would be that one, because that story, from the moment I saw it, it's like, that's the kind of stuff I love. So uh, 40 Stories by Donald Barthamy is another great book. And then like right underneath, like then there's another another line of descent to Paget Powell, uh, and especially the interrogative mood, which is one of the most unique books of the 21st century, both because it's uh, the form of it is so simple and elegant, uh, and yet at the same time, you'd be hard pressed to pull it off. But it's a it's a 160 page novel, and each line is a question. And like, how do you do that? And how do you pull it off? Uh, is like a beautiful, a beautiful thing. Uh, and I love that book just because it is so distinctive and it shouldn't be possible to do it. Uh, but he did it. He really pulled it off. And uh, yeah, so The Interrogative Mood by Paget Powell and really any book by Paget Powell, you can't go wrong, uh, is excellent. There's Kafka, uh, the metamorphosis, like I'm going to say it's a book, like I've seen it in book form. And that story, that book, that story, whatever you want to call it, uh, I, you know, you almost don't have to read it again because every action of Gregor's, everything, everything in the book is like in my head and power and force of that story uh, from start to finish. It really is, really is what literature is all about. Do you have to say something about, profound about Kafka anymore? Everybody loves Kafka. I think everyone, everyone speaks about Kafka. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if there's any profound things anyone can say anymore that are original. Yeah, like everybody should just read Kafka. Like it's good. It's good. Yeah. Um, the Bell, Saul Bellow is not in fashion. I don't think uh, anymore. Uh, for a lot of reasons, uh, mostly because like his portrayals of women are uh, not particularly flattering, and uh, you know um, I don't like you know uh, he's an old white dude who does like with old white ideas uh, in a lot of ways, and like Henderson the Rain King is like uh, not a great book to be uh, holding up in the twenty first century, I don't think. Uh, but but at the same time. Uh, as a Jewish American writer, uh, he's an extremely important figure, uh, stylistically, uh, really uh, unique in kind of a mix of uh, very intellectual, philosophical concepts with kind of street language all the way through, but also in just capturing what it's like to be a uh, Jewish American. Uh, particularly in the mid to late 20th century, a really important figure and very influential on me. And Mr. Sandler's Planet, I think, does everything 
Saul Bellow does really well, and also a little bit of what he, like where things go offline. But the stuff that he does really well in the book is fantastic. You know, like Sandler is an amazing character, this Holocaust survivor who has come to America uh, and he's old Jewish intellectual dude in the middle of the sexual revolution and he does not freaking get it. Uh, you know, uh, this idea of like lo loving everybody and letting loose, uh, not just sexually, but just the whole letting loose business uh, that was uh, happening in the mid to late 60s. He doesn't get it. And there are many uh, comic moments in the novel. And like, when I say he doesn't get it, I mean that on the one hand, he's really disturbed by it. On the other hand, he is simultaneously uh, very intrigued by it. And there's just this action sequence uh, at the beginning of the novel uh, where like he's taken to following this pickpocket around on the subway uh, who comes from obviously very different life from his. Uh, and like, you know, he admires the way the pickpocket works and operates. And when the pickpocket catches him, um, like, there's just like this magic that happens where there's this pursuit uh, up th through the streets and into this hotel where he corners him and uh, the pickpocket just shows him his penis. And it's just this amazing penis and like just shows it to him. Uh, and Samler is uh, very disturbed. Uh, and in this wonderful moment, it's a kind of wonderful moment that you can only get uh, in fiction. And it's rendering is just, um, it's got the right comic effect, I think. And that book, um, very powerful. And its ending is beautiful too. It's like one of the few poignant endings of a book where uh, Samler is visiting his nephew, who's dead now. He's visiting his nephew's corpse in the hospital. And he's seen all these uh, ridiculous, absurd uh, things all throughout his day, uh, along with the pickpocket's penis. Uh, and he's just like thinking about like what to do. And like, he's just looking down like, what am I to do in this life? And like looking into his dead nephew's body uh, and just thinking uh, what to do and how inside of us, we do know what to do. We do know how to act and we do know what to love. Um, it's just a beautiful point ending. Um, and like, I don't know if you can pull off a point ending, ending like that anymore in a novel, um, but Bellow did and great book, great book. It's also In the Lake of the Woods, which is by Tim O'Brien. It's not his most well-known book. His most well-known book is The Things They Carried, uh, which is like one of the most important uh, books about Vietnam, works of fiction about Vietnam ever. Um, In the Lake of the Woods is different, uh, but I love it because it's probably O'Brien is most experimental. I don't think that people think about Tim O'Brien as an experimental writer, really. Um, he's so... Uh, popular and he sells so many books like it's hard to believe like he does any experiments uh, but it's really formally interesting uh, maybe like almost like a almost like a predecessor I don't know if Daniel James would know Tim O'Brien's work but like almost like a predecessor of the Ezra Moss book because it's a, another almost sort of detective story but from a different angle instead of following the detective around you're following the murderer uh, and it's a story about uh a guy who's just lost his campaign for Senate uh, because uh, his history in the Vietnam War has come out and he's taken part in massacres uh, in Vietnam. 
uh, but the book is broken down into various sections uh, beyond just prose narrative. Uh, there are all these uh, hy hypothesis sections where like you get all kinds of alternative histories of like what might have happened to his wife also. Uh, and you get all these uh, evidence sections, uh, which are like partly like objects uh, all around the place, but also like little quotes uh, from different people who have known uh, the murderer uh, back in Vietnam and through a Senate campaign and all around the all around the world. Uh, and all these little breakoff points kind of like create this weird sort of almost doubt in your mind. Like, you know, the whole time that the dude killed her. Uh, but like you're reading all this other stuff, too. And you're like, maybe not. Maybe not. Uh, and you never quite get total closure in the book. Uh, so like, even as you're sure, like she's dead and he killed her you're also like i don't know we know like, you know maybe not uh, and like really wonderful effect in there uh, and a really classic book tim o'brien i think is really an underrated writer i don't know if like people read him anymore but um when he's on uh, his books are uh, spectacular and he's another person who can um write a sentence that is really precise and really take you someplace um really take you someplace which is what i'm after uh, and i think i mentioned earlier uh gerald murnane um the plains is a beautiful book um i think a few years ago i read an essay by brian evanson about gerald murnane i thought it was really interesting i thought and i also learned about murnane from a book called infinite fictions by david winters uh, and both of them, like, were just describing this very um, alien sort of writing that was like this pure English, this beautiful English, but what it was doing to you sentence after sentence and where it was taking you, uh, really unique. Uh, and a book like The Plains sounds so simple you know i'm gonna go someplace and make a film uh, and try to get funding for my film but what's actually happening inside the novel uh sentence by sentence uh, and all of his descriptions of like the australia a real australia but also the australia in his mind um magnificent and really like he's Murnane is also the writer who like i think kind of describes uh a way of thinking about writing that is really useful in terms of like just trying to describe the images in your mental landscape uh, rather than like seeing the world itself like seeing what's inside of your mind and trying to put all that weirdness all those particular images that you love uh, and that are important to you into the fiction in a way that will make it more than just uh, that original image. Yeah, he's a gorgeous writer in that book right there. Um, and all his books, really. Um, distinctive, beautiful stuff. And I think there's like, I think I'm like one more book. Um, Deja Dernjic. Deja Dernjic. Um, Daja. Daja, yes. Um, I, these names I can't pronounce. I'm embarrassing myself. <laughs> but she... Um, Trieste is a beautiful book 
Although really, like she's another writer that you could pick out just about any book. And like, they're all brilliant because she's doing these things that no other writer really does quite the way she's doing them. Um, another writer who's super formally interesting uh, with a lot of collage effects. You know, you read police reports, get photographs of dolls and like, you know, she'll just stop her novel and just get you lists of names of people who uh, were murdered uh, in the Holocaust or during a war of liberation in Yugoslavia, liberation, one of the Yugoslavian civil war sorts of things. Uh, really brilliant the way she like captures history uh, and describes history and transforms history uh, into uh, just a moving work of literature that is beyond any real reading experience I've ever had before. Because um, her style, like her style is also weird uh, because it's not uh, acoustically beautiful or in any way beautiful the way Gerald Murnane's is. It's got like real hard, rough edges to it. Um, really precise. It's not like it's rough that like it's one draft and like out you go. Uh, but like you feel like you're touching the serrated edge of a prose knife uh, and uh, which is totally appropriate for what she's doing because it's also the most misanthropic project uh, I've ever read. Uh, and um, yeah, very moving, very formally interesting, super distinctive uh, and uh, wonderful. And wonderful too, because like if you look at the back covers of her books, uh, her photograph, she looks like the happiest lady in the world. Uh, she's got a big open mouth smile uh, and she just looks like sweet grandma when you open her book and you're reading all this stuff like, oh man. Um, so um, wonderful writer, wonderful writer. Brilliant. Okay. I think I'm definitely going to go out and get that Tim O'Brien book. That sounds really cool. Um, great book. You, you will not be disappointed. Cool. All right. Well, before we wrap this up, do you want to tell us where we can go out and get Begat, Who Begat, Who Begat, and where we can get in touch with you online? Sure. Uh, so you can get uh, the book uh, directly from Astrophil Press. Uh, you go to their website. Uh, you can order directly from them, which is uh, definitely the best way. Always want to encourage folks, like when you're going to buy a book by independent press, like go straight to the horse's mouth. That's the way. Uh, that's the best way to do it. I think you can get it from bookshop.org um, or or like, you know, you can get it from Amazon also. Uh, so any one of those ways you can get the book uh, or there are some, in, I think there are some independent bookstores that are carrying it. I know uh, definitely in Jacksonville, if anybody's listening in Jacksonville uh, that are carrying it. And if not, you should, at, you should definitely ask your independent bookstore uh, to stock this book. Um, I would recommend that for sure. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, just as at Marcus Pactor. Um, and uh, yeah, like, you know, I don't mess with people too much on Twitter about anything except like, here's a book that I like, or here's a new story. Uh, so, um, you know, if you're worried about that sort of hectoring Twitter person, that's not <laughs> me. Uh, it's just about literature, man. That's it. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, everyone should go out and have a read because I think it's a really great little collection. Thanks so much, Ben. I really appreciate being on. It's a great show.
thanks once again to Marcus Pactor. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. Don't forget to head over to anchor.fm forward slash beyond zero and leave us a voice message, and we'll play it on the show. We'll see you for your next episode next week. <laughs>